Good morning. Welcome to Reading the Register with Pete. I'm Pete Myers. Uh, today we're going to be going over some uh, headlines, mainly centering around Des Moines, a little bit uh, around the state of Iowa. This is the first episode I'm recording and taking a dive into this podcasting thing. I like this format. Reminds me of uh, old school AM radio. I'm a guy that grew up in uh, Chicagoland in the 90s, listening to uh, the score and all types of AM radio with my old man. So I like this. Um, it's also dedicated to my loving and supportive partner, who Frank County once referred to as Sarara Ray. Uh, she's a very busy woman taking care of uh, and raising our kids and other people's kids as a teacher and doesn't quite have the time I, I have to pour over the headlines and the news and consume them. I'm kind of a news junkie. I have a what she calls an old man habit of waking up before sunrise and, again, pouring over the headlines with my pot of coffee, getting myself all worked up. Uh, I'm also a writer that's working on two book projects at the same time right now, which can be monotonous. I've uh, previ previously written for uh, Iowa Living Magazine, uh, Daily Iowa Newspaper, Juice Magazine here in Des Moines, uh, several, several other websites that aren't worth mentioning. And uh, I'm currently working on a, a couple books about topics that uh, excite me that I'm sure I'll plug here at some point. But this one's, uh, like I said, for Sarara Ray. And uh, hoping that uh, this gives you something to talk about. Maybe, maybe saves you some time and allows you to uh, get a little bit into my, my news obsession world here. We'll give this a shot. Let's go. So we're going to start, we got to start with a uh, city council meeting. Now, if you're not familiar, uh, Des Moines city council meetings have been a shit show for probably about 27 straight months here, I believe. Um, it's kind of, I don't want to compare them to a car accident because some aspects of them, uh, and some members of the public give me bits of hope, but they're, the meetings are kind of tragic, sad, funny at the same time. And, uh, last night we had, we had all of that. I mean, it was just, it was just last month where local business owners were using their relative power to advocate cutting homeless, houseless people off of food and medical care and, uh, demonizing addiction, even as they sell alcohol, so it's quite it's it's quite a uh, quite a platform for varying personalities around the city to to voice their opinions. But the seven of them that that hold power have uh, their own unique influence. And the big angle here, the I guess the biggest irony is Josh Mandelbaum used his relative power to uh, try to advocate for something positive. And, the, and kind of stuck his neck out there. So shout out Josh Mandelbaum. I don't say that a lot, but uh, it was kind of kind of impressive how he, he put his neck out there. Now, the topic at hand that caused uh, the controversy and generated the headlines in the register was over a motion that Mandelbaum introduced that would limit uh, theoretical prosecution by that would be funded by the city of women who may seek abortion should it be uh, should it be uh, completely made illegal as it, as anticipated so let's get into it I'll read the story and then we'll offer some uh, commentary and critique but the headline goes not in our purview 
Des Moines City Council votes to leave abortion matters to the state, federal government. Abortion and reproductive health care matters should be left up to state and federal government, not the city, multiple Des Moines City Council members expressed at Monday night's meeting. In a 5-2 split, council members decided against holding a discussion about a resolution that would have limited police and that would have limited police and city officials' ability to investigate a person for accessing or providing abortions in Des Moines. All council members, except for Josh Mandelbaum, who drafted the resolution, and Ward 1 council member Indira Shoemaker voted against discussions, though not without heated debate. This is not our purview, Ward 4 council member Joe Gatto said, calling the proposal a political stunt before he motioned against holding a workshop. This shouldn't even be on our agenda. There is nothing we can do. The fight is a federal and a state issue, and it's right up there at the Capitol. It's not right here at City Hall. At large, council, at large council member Connie Boyson seconded the motion. I believe in women's rights. I believe we have a choice. I believe all of that, Boyson said. I don't believe these things are what we in the city should be doing and can do. Council members promote, the council member's proposal would bar investigations of abortion law violations in Des Moines. So the key, uh, just to interrupt, sorry, the, the key thing that, that I would point out there is that they shut, they're, they're not shutting down any type of measure that would actually do anything that Mandelbaum's motion suggested. Gatto shut it down within five seconds of the motion being brought up last night and shut down the idea that they would even talk about it at a future date. So his role here in, in blocking this, that, that Connie obviously jumped in, and they both said they were going to, or Connie at least said yesterday in the paper that she would probably do this anyways. Uh, their, their role there was to shut down any form of progress or even the mere idea that they could be discussing the things the city does have power to do uh, that may protect, uh, you know, women and their bodily autonomy and their right to, uh, to you know, do whatever they want with their health care. So continuing. Des Moines should do its part to safeguard access to abortion for residents in a state that could impose further restrictions on reproductive health care, Mandelbaum told the Des Moines Register last week. With other cities across the country taking action to protect abortion access, following the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, he said, the resolution also would send a signal to the community that Des Moines is not idly standing by. We know with what the U.S. Supreme Court did, they explicitly said this is better to be decided by local elected officials who are closest to the consequences, Mandelbaum said. We're actually even closer to the consequences of these actions than some of these state officials. So he's, he's kind of pointing out the irony there that the, I guess, the, the establishment or the little class is kind of playing ping pong with the wedge issue where they, you know, the, uh, the Republicans are at arguing at a federal level that it should be decided by states. Um, not that this is a, a state institution, but this, then the powers that be, even in this municipality, are, are ping-ponging the ball right back to them and saying they should be actually the ones to decide. So um, it, it's exactly what they've done. Uh, any suggestion of progress or social change that lands on their desk from members of the community here in Des Moines is uh, the good old boys club that consists of the majority of the council, Sands, uh, Indira Shoemaker, typically including Josh Mandelbaum, except for this incident, uh, they, they typically kind of all collaborate and coalesce 
to shut down any the mere suggestion of change. Uh, this particular article is also humorous because uh, Mayor County, County Boyson, Linda Westergaard, and Joe Gatto all use the word uh, purview, which I, you know, I must not be very good at English here. I'd never heard that expression before. I had to look it up. It's a, it, you know, it applies here, obviously, but it means the scope of the influence or concerns of something. But it's noteworthy that they all use that word in, to me, uh, call me a conspiracy theorist, but when they're all making a PR statement that uses the exact same word or expression, it indicates to me that they had collaborated maybe beforehand to, uh, uh, to shut down the mere suggestion uh, that Mandelbaum's ideas uh, w- would even be talked about. Um, Mandelbaum defended himself, I thought, for once. Uh, I mean, Gatto still kicked his ass. He, Gatto just browbeats Josh Mandelbaum at every opportunity, and he's been doing it for years. But uh, Mandelbaum countered uh, to the council that he identified specific things that are within our purview, within this issue knowing it's a part of a broader discussion. But this resolution focuses specifically on the things that we can do and that we should do. And then Indira, thank God for Indira Shoemaker, she uh, usually is the only one that will go back at the reactionaries whenever Joe Gatto starts using a bully uh, pulpit. And she did it again last night. And she was 100% right with what she said. She said, "This this is in our purview. It 100% is. Every single piece of it is. And it is not a political stunt to try to protect our residents. However, it is a political stunt to deny this, she said, drawing applause from some members of the public. And every single one of you here is taking a stance when you vote on this today. There, There is a vote on the table, Gatto said, after some back and forth among council members. Vote no if you don't like it. That's the end of it, period. We can't do anything. Um, so again, Gatto is able to act like this because he he does hold uh, the power in the cards because he has enough votes uh, to uh, introduce and or shut down anything that comes in front of the council. Because like I said, they uh, Gatto, Westergaard, Voss, Boyson, and the rest of them uh, represent a certain uh, reactionary voter base in Des Moines that doesn't support bodily autonomy and women's health care rights. And they certainly don't want to be on, on the record uh, at city council using their power to do anything, anything uh, to, protect, uh, to protect sovereignty of, of the people who, are, who will be prosecuted and uh, most likely negatively impacted by anything, any resources the city may use uh, to prosecute them. So it's kind of a, it's a dangerous situation where that, and it shows how easily uh, they, they can shut down any type of dissent or uh, idea to advance or progress on some of these very important and pertinent issues uh, at, a, at a municipal level like that. So it's, again, that's the same thing the Dems do at a federal level in terms of the same exact wedge issue, where for decades now, despite numerous times um, holding multiple levers, levels of or levers of power, uh, the libs will will throw their hands up and claim that they they there's nothing they can do and, and to vote harder, and vote for us, and that's the only option to improve. Even though when we do, uh, it seems like they can't do anything about it. So, uh, just an example of that on a local level. 
The register also took the time this morning, and I'm not going to read this entire thing. Uh, it's an example of certain things that happen in public or happen at school board meetings don't necessarily need to be reported on, uh, particularly, particularly when they lean toward transphobia and attacking groups that are traditionally oppressed and, and or you know, face poverty, homelessness, incarceration at disproportionate rates. So it's not, not really cool to even platform this, but the, the irony here in the first paragraph is the writer and the editor there that printed the story referred to this woman who showed up at a Ankeny school board meeting. And again, if you're not aware, there's little townships around Des Moines, uh, looking at you, Ankeny and Johnson, that have these culture warriors that grandstand at government meetings advocating for transphobia and all types of wacko conspiracy theories regarding the the, uh, the pandemic and whatnot. Uh, not that those two things are the same, but uh, this particular person is well known for writing quacky editorials to the register, and I, I recognize her name right away, but they referred to her uh, even after that behavior as an activist, where the, I guess the accurate title for Miss Kimberly Reeks would probably be uh, openly transphobic uh, reactionary citizen of Ankeny, something like that. But they referred to her in the first paragraph as an activist that appeared before the Ankeny school board in an outfit like the one uh, that was previously worn at a drag show, obviously in an attempt to uh, highlight some her opinions about the decadence of that type of opportunity and, you know, whatever depravity. It's all uh, transphobic nonsense. And it's really, an ex they, they really shouldn't print this stuff or give this woman a, a, a platform. It's gross. Um, I don't like it. I'm not reading it. But anyways, this lady, Kimberly Reeks, got a uh, story high in the fold with the register for uh, taking a transphobic stand in public. So that's great. Um, this one's funny. This was from yesterday, but, uh, titled tired of losing <laughs> big name, Iowa Democrats forge new groups looking for long-term gains. Okay. Now th this is again, it's the tradition with the, the media and the, the IDP, the democratic party here in Iowa, where whenever the, it becomes apparent to them that they're about to get absolutely waxed in an election, uh, the, the register and the media will turn to the donor class of the Democratic Party here, uh, mainly consisting of, I mean, Fred Hubble's money, people like Tom Vilsack, Wilburn, uh, Jack, it was resident slumlord Jack Hatch, who had spectacularly failed in, I think it was 2014. But whenever this, this starts happening, these elite, the elite class, the donor class of the Democratic Party starts turning to the media about all these brand new innovations and fascinating new concepts they have that will improve the situation in two years. And in this case, they're talking to the register about something that uh, called the Hughes Project uh, that they want. Again, this was an idea they had two years ago. And this new group has evolved out of that. I'm sorry. And these, again, this is something that happens after, quote, Iowa Democrats fell flat across the ticket despite heavy financial investments. Um, so the funny part about this is these like people like Humble and Hatch, even the chair, Mike Franken, Liz Mathis, even Deidre, 
are declining to comment about the objectives and just speaking in generalities about this brand new group that has an election strategy. <coughs> Hubble gave some bizarre comments about uh, being perceived as a white old man and from the ice age and Neanderthal that's thought out to continue to run the old program. Ironically, that's exactly what it looks like. Uh, it, it's essentially a, another dark money organization that's being funded by by millionaires to advance neoliberal austerity policies and resist any type of change to the party. So it's the same old shit. But uh, shout out to Waterloo's Ross Smith, who the register quoted here uh, and was allowed to criticize uh, the donor class. Now, if you remember, it wasn't about eight months ago that Hubble and other anonymous Democratic operatives in Des Moines ran a hit piece on their own candidate even before they before the primary, I'm sorry, just after the primary, saying that her campaign was financially irresponsible, uh, you know, not worthy of the big money donations that that he had given in the past because it was essentially a lost cause. And, you know, financial disclosure showed that, yeah, he had indeed just given a fraction of the money that he had donated in the past to the same cause. So this this donor class is already you know, already thrown in the towel on this race uh, months ago. And Ross Smith knows this. Why? Because he was trying to run for governor and encountered serious problems with this exact, uh, this exact class. So um, Hubble made this, like I said, the strange comment about, uh, you know, criticism he may face for being a rich old white man. And then, but state representative Ross Smith, Democrat Waterloo, criticizes the group's efforts. Smith launched a gubernatorial campaign last year, but it ended in January when he couldn't raise enough money. Hmm. Who's the guy that usually finances these campaigns, including his own? Saying major donors weren't willing to invest in the race, he has called out the wider Democratic Party for failing to support candidates of color. In my opinion, anyways, it's a fallacy that this is new, he said correctly. Uh, these are all the same people who've always been having these colluding conversations for the future of the Iowa Democratic Party for a long time. They're just choosing now, I think, to hold their dollars and push them toward initiatives that they find value in or data that they find value in that they're doing themselves as opposed to really amplify, amplifying the voices of the people. So he's 100% accurate with that. Um the same class that's now coming up with these new electoral strategies is the same one that didn't even support their own candidate a few months ago um, and is now pretending to. So it's, it's just a disaster. They're going to get, I mean, I, I don't make, I mean, sometimes I do, but the election is not looking good for uh, the Iowa Democratic Party coming up here. Uh, let's talk about, I'm sorry, I'm just talking shit about electoralism in my most of my first three topics here are about elections, but the register does run these candidate previews sometime, sometimes. And I found something kind of unique, I guess, ironic or a connection worth pointing out. And something that uh, Iowa Attorney General uh, Tom Miller said. Uh, he was asked, What do you see as the primary role of the Iowa Attorney General's office? And how would you help achieve the mission? Miller says, protecting and serving Iowans. My office does so in the following ways. Protect consumers against fraud and abuse, prosecute murders, sexual abuse, and other serious crimes. Sounds good, right? 
He went on to say he defends criminal prosecutions across the state, serve crime victims. He protects the taxpayers by providing expert legal advice to the state government. He defends the state against lawsuits and protects farmers against increasing concentration in the industry, fraud, and corporate abuses. And that struck a memory of uh, something a couple years ago. And we all remember uh, during the first month or so of the Floyd uprising, uh, right before they all, all left for the season, the Iowa legislature uh, unanimously passed. I mean, it was completely bipartisan, uh, some mild police reform uh, laws that uh, included things like, uh, if you remember, banning police chokeholds. I don't know if that's happened. I've seen videos of resource officers using chokeholds on children since that bill. They, uh, the bill also forbidden rehiring of officers fired for misconduct. We know that has had no impact as there's stories in the Iowa Capitol Dispatch last month and the Gazette about uh, uh, police officers being fired for misconduct and then being hired elsewhere in Iowa and or being uh, backed by their union and lawsuits against uh, the cities that forced their or forced their resignation. There's another Iowa officer complaining in the Iowa dispatch in May that he had to quit his job uh, after an excessive force investigation to quote, save his career, something that I thought the bill made impossible. Um, and then relating to uh, Attorney General Miller, uh, at the time, after the bill was passed, after they all took a bow, and patted themselves at the back for, for the historic feat. Miller said, these are somber and serious times, and this legislation reflects that. Our office is registered in support of the bills. This legislation could lead to real reform by addressing chokeholds and officer misconduct. It's a step forward. I'm grateful to see our legislators come together, and at this time, bipartisanship is crucial, of course. Um, and I'll go back to the article I just read from today. He mentions that his primary role is to defend the state against lawsuits, which involve lawsuits against the police. And if we know the Des Moines police or police across Iowa, they've been involved in numerous lawsuits, uh, costing them millions of dollars. And the guy who it was also given the supposed power to hold police accountable if they harm people uh, in that bill uh, is also charged with defending those same police officers uh, in civil court. So. If that's a conflict, if that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what would be. Uh, interesting little tidbit there. Uh, also noteworthy to date, uh, Tom Miller, there have been numerous police killings in Iowa uh, since that bill was passed. And Tom Miller has, of course, not used his power to uh, prosecute any of those officers. And the Iowa uh, DCI in its entire history has never once found uh, a police officer in Iowa uh, guilty of using excessive force when they, they shot and killed somebody. So there's that. That's, those are not uh, unbiased uh, institutions that are, you know, making fair judgment on behalf of the public when it comes to uh, police brutality and things like that. So that's irony. When I read that today, I thought back to him and how supportive he was about uh, police accountability. And then it dawned on me that he's also charged with uh, defending the police against uh, these charged with defending the police from being held accountable, ultimately. So, also, okay, sad stuff. We got some uh, 
decay of capitalism story here. And some uh, inmates in Iowa essentially being used as human test rats. Not good stuff. So apparently, this is from the, the Gazette, I'm sorry, the Register printed this, but the uh, Iowa Dispatch did the original reporting. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it from uh, this guy, Clark Kaufman. Um, so apparently, the title here, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it because it's kind of, it's horrific. A horrible sight. A nursing home resident suffocates while suspended up. An Iowa nursing home where a resident suffocated after becoming wedged between a bed and a safety device has been cited by the state. Sorry, I'm messing with my app here. Okay, anyways. An Iowa nursing home where a resident suffocated after becoming wedged between a bed and a safety device has been cited by the state. State records indicate the Clarion Wellness and Rehabilitation Center was cited for placing its residents in immediate jeopardy. An inspection report revealed that Clarion Wellness had installed a grab bar, also known as an assistance handle or bed bar, on a resident's bed in June 2021. The facility installed the device without first assessing the risk it might pose and without obtaining consent from the resident's family, the inspector reported. In the early hours of March 19th, that resident began climbing out of bed and apparently fell forward with their upper body becoming trapped between the headboard and grab bar. The worker described, a worker described the scene to inspectors as a horrible sight and said the resident obviously got caught between the headboard and grab bar and a medical examination revealed the resident died of positional asphyxiation. So that's horrible stuff. The ultimate consequence was they were fined $10,000. Now, the, the, I guess the twist here that's concerning is that this is apparently a frequent thing that happens uh, not only in Iowa, but nationwide. The state records indicate other Iowans have died under similar circumstances involving bed rails. Uh, in 2019, senior star at Elmore Place, uh, assisted living center in Davenport, was fined after a resident with dementia was found dead, tangled under blankets. Also, she, uh, an autopsy also revealed that woman died from positional asphyxiation. And between 2003, this is real, between 2003 and 2019, almost 197,000 people were injured or killed by portable bed rails for adults. So what the fuck is going on in our assisted living centers? I mean, that's, that's an insane amount of injuries from, from trying to fall out of, from crawling out of bed. Uh, look after the old folks, yo, your elderly, your grandma and grandpa. This stuff's scary. You know, we hear that there's been stories all over the state too about elder abuse and uh, all, all types of uh, things you just don't want to hear about. So Look after the old folks. It's a life lesson. We just learned that in my household, a, a 93-year-old relative uh, got into a, a minor, minor, minor fender bender and was was pretty shaken up about it. And uh, no one's hurt or anything like that. But yeah, we got to look after uh, some of these uh, these people that need need assistance. This is just as a society, we owe it to them to to take care of them and not uh, have to pass away in such an undignified manner. That's, that's such a horrible thing to read about.
as is this story from, uh, yeah, let's look at some local reactionary news. KCCI is full of all the typical stories about car accidents and two paragraph long direct quotes from Paul Parizic. So we won't be reading that bullshit. This one is, is, ter- is disturbing and features everyone's favorite corny liberal hero and uh, the guy that the libs wish was running for governor state auditor rob sand corniest motherfucker on on iowa twitter this one's titled iowa panel rejects one million dollar payouts to inmates given vaccine overdoses A state board on Monday rejected claims for $1 million payments for 52 prison inmates who were given six times the proper dose of COVID-19 vaccines last year. I didn't know it was that many. The three-member state appeals board, which considers state legal financial obligations, unanimously denied the claims from inmates who received the extra doses in April 2021. The 52 inmates who each sought a $1 million payment were among 77 prisoners at the Iowa State Penitentiary in Fort Madison who had been given overdoses of the Pfizer vaccine by prison nursing staff. The board, made up of State Auditor Rob Sand, State Treasurer Michael Fitzgerald, and Iowa Department of Management Director Craig Paulson, accepted the recommendation of the Iowa Attorney General's Office office lawyers to reject the claims. Uh, And we had just brought up Mr. Miller in the uh, attorney general's office. Uh, The lawyers advised that under the federal public readiness and emergency preparedness act, the state is immune from claims arising out of administration of the COVID-19 vaccine. The mistaken dose occurred after the vaccine was delivered in concentrate form that was supposed to be diluted with saline solution. Two nurses were fired after the incident. Of course they do. The, the workers that the, no one was held accountable except for the two nurses, folks. <coughs> Excuse me. A spokesman for the union representing prison staff said the overdoses happened after the prison abruptly switched from using the Moderna vaccine to the Pfizer vaccine. Pfizer packages its vaccines in vials that contain six doses apiece and must be diluted with saline before use. Moderna's vaccine does not require the same dilution. Price said the nurses were given 90 minutes notice and no training on the change and how the new vaccines were to be prepared and delivered before they were were to begin administering shots. A corrections department spokesman said the agency expects its nurses to be able to read and follow instructions for administering vaccines for those who are under their care. Now, there's a story, uh, again, of our our hero, Rob Sand. I'm writing him in for governor. I've actually heard people say that. Um, it's, it's an example of, of uh, horrific conditions uh, facilitated by the prison industrial complex where uh, they do nothing to actually address recidivism, and it sounds more like torture or... Uh, human beings being used like lab test rats and then just have the door slammed in their face when they complain about it by uh, the champion of the people, 
Mr. Sand and Mr. Fitzgerald. They're all about fairness and, you know, doing what's right. They'll, they'll sure prosecute the uh, guy making $11 an hour that uh, was given too much uh, on his paycheck. But as far as taking care of 52 inmates who are locked in a cage and being given six times the, this is not an anti-vaccine statement here, but that's, that's outrageous. I mean, it sounds like a, a pretty big oversight for a nurse to not, uh, I, I'm assuming the vaccines have labels on them that indicate that they're diluted and not to be administered all at once. But I'm no nurse. I'm just another idiot in his garage with the podcast. What do I know? Should we do Bleeding Heartland and the... No... We're going to go to uh, the story from Axios, actually. Axios, Des Moines, which is a trash rag. But they had an interesting story about voter registration. More electoralism. But uh, the the Democratic Party in Iowa is... uh, worried, and rightfully so, about uh, new uh, voter registration data that's coming out showing that their numbers are dropping. And they're attributing it to uh, Paul Pate and a law that the Republicans passed that allows Pate to inactivate uh, voters who didn't participate in the last general. Now, I mean, that's definitely a, a change uh, that's happened. But w- we got some uh, insight here from a guy who I traditionally don't like, but I read his blog, and he's a he's a uh, uh, election worker. Somehow he has some type of high role in the auditor's office in Johnson County in Iowa City. He's a shit lib, but I mean, he knows way more about the actual machinery of the electoral process on a county level like that. So. We're going to read uh, Jason Clayworth, God, his story in Axios. Okay, titled, Iowa Democratic Voter Registrations Dropped 15%. Iowa Democrats lost about 103,000 active registered voters, a 15% loss since November 2022, I'm sorry, 2020, according to data from the Iowa Secretary of State's office. Meanwhile, active Republican voter registrations slid just 5%, just over 36,000. Why it matters. The loss could signal trouble for Democrats come November 8th. Republicans have been able to reverse some of the losses in the last year, gaining just over 20,000 active registrations through September 1st. Democrats lost more than 15,000 during that period. Democrats now have more than 683,000 registered voters, where Democrats have 596,000. So what's that, an 87,000 gap. Uh, The statewide trends are reflected in Polk, Warren, and Dallas County, so Des Moines and surrounding counties. Democrats just lost just over 19,000 active registered voters combined in those three counties since November 2020, while Republicans lost about 7,600. What they're saying, Polk County Democrats sent an email to supporters in July calling the data stomach-churning. They contend that a pate purge is at work and that Democrats are disproportionately affected. 
Uh, that's a reference to an election law revised last year that requires Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate to move voters to an inactive status if they didn't participate in the last general election or update registration information. Registrations are important in all races, but could be especially acute in close congressional or statewide races, Dennis Goldford, a political science professor at Drake, said. Uh, Sydney Axney's race against none, we're going to cover Axney next, is a race where registration numbers could have significant influence, and that's definitely true. She's only won by a handful uh, the last two times. Okay, thank you, Jason. Um, the auditor out in Johnson County kind of explained away a few things. Um, one thing that he didn't address is people that may actually be disaffected by uh, the first two years of Dementia Joe. I mean, uh, there's all types of anecdotes about people out there who uh, switch to to switch their registration to independent and then pretend that they're, you know, above it all because they, <laughs> because they intentionally don't participate in, in, uh, in uh, primary votes. I don't, I've never understood that. I get it showing disaffection for one party or the other by going independent, but you're really just disqualifying yourself. Um, not that that's not an endorsement of Democrats. I'm registered Democrat just because sometimes I like candidates that run in their primaries and I want to be able to participate and their rules uh, prohibit independents uh, from participating in their uh, at least half of their electoral process. But um, the auditor out in Johnson County, like I said, kind of pushes back on the idea that there's some type of nefarious uh, purge going on by the Republican Secretary of State to get rid of uh, get voters off the rolls. And it's also important that one thing that's not mentioned in any of that Axios story is that being moved to an inactive registration status does not mean you can't vote. Um, it means that you have to update your registration status, which you can do at the polls uh, before, uh, on election day. I believe somebody fact checked that. I'm almost, yeah, you can, because it says right here on the auditor's website, you can re still register up to that. Um, there's also, you know, a, a period of time before the election where you can uh, change that inactive status. So it's important to kind of be up on that, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're disqualified from participating in the election by any means, which, you know, some will have you believe. It's not good, but it's, uh, as, as uh, Mr. Deeth explains here, it's more of a, a matter that affects a certain demographic that doesn't, uh, that moves a lot, which is generally younger people or college students who are, you know, getting settled into life and maybe, you know, leaving college or leaving their folks home or don't have a, you know, stable roommate situation and, and bounce between apartments, which I did when I was younger. So it's, it's definitely understandable. But here we go. Uh, John Deeth says, uh, the implication in the headline of that Axios story is that Dem voters are somehow being, I'm pulling this from his blog, by the way, he writes a fucking obsessive blog about like really nerdy electoral topics about voting in Johnson County. Sometimes it's interesting though. Uh, he doesn't like anybody that tries to uh, criticize the Dems from the left. I, I'm interrupting myself here. The implication of the headlines is that Dem voters are somehow being disappeared or party changed without permission for some nefarious reason. And believe me, if that were happening, the big county Democratic auditors like Joel Miller, Pate's opponent, Eric Van Lanker, DeGere's running mate, Jamie Fitzgerald, or Travis Weipart, would notice and would be raising holy hell. The day-to-day -day processing of voter registration is done by local staff like me, not by paid staff. As I've been processing absentee requests and registrations and talking to voters, which is what I do all day, every day, I'm not seeing anything really weird. And if Dems were being wished into the cornfield, 
Johnson County would be where it would happen. Let me explain an active voter status, Deef says. Most people assume that means what campaign staffers call a weak voting D, but that's not it at all. Inactive status is a preliminary step to cancellation that can be fixed by re-registering. A voter stays on inactive status through two general elections, and only then do they get canceled. An important thing to remember is that mail, old-fashioned snail mail, is a very important in voter list maintenance. What inactive has historically meant since motor voter took effect in 1995 is that the local elected official has received return mail or noticed from the post office that someone has moved. Um, and then the biggest change that has happened is mentioned in the article, a state law, uh, I brought this up, a state law change in spring of 2021 uh, where they could inactivate you for just not voting. So that, that was a change and people are being inactivated for sitting out the last general. And that was a big uh, inactivation, if that's a word. Uh, but it's not being done by the evil Secretary of State, Paul Pate. But it's definitely not a good thing when uh, the reactionaries are doing things that make it uh, harder to you know, participate in the process. Not that voting is the be-all, end-all to some of the problems that I think that we have here. Uh, but not a good thing. Not a good thing. Not a vote blue, whoever, uh, no matter who guy. Last thing, I'm going to dig up some of these. Uh, it's kind of related to Bleeding Heartland. Now, I am not a fan of Kim Reynolds. I'm not defending Kim Reynolds. Uh, I don't like anything about her. Uh, but it's also pertinent uh, to point out when staunch Democrats or professional Democratic activists are calling out Kim Reynolds for uh, using racial dog whistles or campaigning in bad faith, appealing to the lowest common dom- common denominator. That is all absolutely true. Kim Reynolds' uh, recent campaign ad about has everyone lost their mind and Iowa has common sense has been picked on by every editorial in the state and uh, right, rightfully labeled as it was. It's not a good thing. Um, she's getting plenty of pushback for that. Now, I will also point out a phenomenon that, I mean, we've been seeing this for two years, and the, the Axne campaign is still um, reacting or behaving like they, they didn't see this coming, and they're running ads that attack their defund the police critics who come from the left. So in essence, so long story short, back after George Floyd was killed, some cities around the country uh, kind of gently embraced the idea of reducing funding to their police department. Some of them made minor, minor reductions in the budget that were ultimately undone over time. And uh, I think almost every major police department in the United States has, get, has received increased funding uh, since Floyd. And that's the case here in, uh, here in Des Moines as well. And as the city council says, that's, you know, per state law, we have to, we have an agreement with the union. We have to keep increasing their funding. Now, the reactionaries, when they're campaigning or trying to criticize uh, liberals from the right, will often say that people like Sidney Axney support defunding the police, that crazy radical agenda. And instead of embracing her critics from the left and people who forward that actually completely viable uh, policy suggestion that is supported by, by activists in Iowa, uh, she embrace, uh, she 
rejects them and embraces her reactionary critics and says, I don't uh, support defunding the police. I actually have increased funding to the police, which is absolutely true. I mean, she's gone out of her way to uh, um, kind of pre-counter the inevitable criticism uh, she's getting from the chuds who, no matter what she did, whether she do, uh, wanted to defund the police or funded the police, she's going to get the same criticism. So she's moving farther right uh, by choice and has run some really, really, uh, I guess, a condescending or uh, right-wing uh, commercials on local television endlessly, as we've all seen uh, over the last two months easily. Um, she also engages in what's called... This is another example of Axne moving right wing where people like Bleeding Heartland should be criticizing their own party when they, they continue to embrace reactionary uh, politics and ideas. Axne ran a uh, like a horrifically xenophobic campaign commercial like targeting Zach Nunn as in the pocket of these these evil Chinese thieves who are stealing our secrets and whatnot, stuff like that. And then it later comes out that she's actually, uh, she actually has received money from and has spoken publicly in support of uh, the exact same like fertilizer cor corporation that's owned by, uh, it's owned by the CPC that they uh, do business in Iowa and they've been embraced by both Zach Nunn and Sydney actually, but she had the gall to, to run a like a yellow peril style ad uh, targeting her political opponent as in the pockets of the evil Chinese. So they're both doing it. Uh, it's only right if we're going to point out the racial dog whistles that Reynolds is using that we should uh, criticize Democratic candidates like Axne for, for appealing to the exact same sentiment. Uh, that is all the headlines I'm going to cover today. I'm working on a new... Uh, newspaper piece or street paper piece about uh, Admiral or AFRICOM Mike Franken that I've been working on for about a month and a half. It's remarkably difficult to get any details on, on that guy and specifically uh, things he did in the Navy, but I think we got a pretty good idea now. So that'll be coming out uh, hopefully by Friday. If there's anything that's worth uh, recording a 46-minute radio show for in the headlines tomorrow, I will be back with you. Hopefully at 8 a.m. sharp, I got off to a to a late start with uh, the family bursting into the garage and interrupting me constantly. I'm just kidding. I love y'all. But we'll be back. Hope you enjoyed it. I did. See y'all later.